We come before You in humility, Father. Just so completely amazed by these gracious words that that David has just read for us. Words that You spoke to King David centuries ago. It's our prayer, Father, that as we, we consider this text and others, that You will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And that we will approach, Father, the greatness of these words in the requisite humility and modesty that is needed for us to be able to discern them, Father, as a voice from heaven. Father, we're thankful for all of the ways that these texts help us to see the greatness of of Your redemption for us of grace and of mercy and of compassion, of Your chesed, Your loving kindness, Father, that never fails. We are thankful for all of these blessings that have come to us eternally in the Christ, Your Messiah, the Son of David. And it's our prayer, Father, that, that in these moments this morning of worship and of remembering the sacrifice of Your Son, Jesus, and our minds intersecting these words, Father, in study, that not only through Your Spirit, but but through the power of Your presence, Father, that we will leave this place more profoundly discipled and walking in the steps of Jesus with a greater devotion and a greater love and a greater hunger for the worship of Your sovereign name, Father, in all of our life in this community. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we look at the promise. A promise that that was made to David. But first I want to remind you of a phrase that, that again, we've been using it at the beginning of all these sermons to remind us of what this Holy Word series, starting with Genesis, going through all of the Bible to Revelation in one year, what it's all about. And here's the statement. The Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not hodgepodge. It's not a, a... a mix and match of stories to suit human beings. But the Bible is one story, and it's about God. The Bible begins with God. In the beginning, there was God and man, and what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. Now again, David is the, the guy we're studying right now. We're at that part of the, 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 Isra- the Israelite history. And David is a very, very important person in the Bible. And his name is all over the Bible. It's just all over the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, which is a bit of an indication of just how important he is. And I think that the more that we think about David and reflect and contemplate the things that happened in his life and how he responds to them and how God's God's Word and God's presence intersects David's life and, and overshadows David's life and is an umbrella over David's life, we understand better what the Bible is saying. Now, the passage that we're looking at this morning out of... Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is, it's, it's really one of the most important passages in, in 1 and 2 Samuel and really in the Old Testament. There is a, a commentary I have by Walter Brueggemann, a well-known Bible scholar, who writes this about this particular text that David White just read for us. Uh, Brueggemann names this chapter the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus. That is, 1 and 2 Samuel 
Indeed, this is one of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament for evangelical faith. Now, last Sunday we looked at David. We saw his anointing last Sunday morning. Last Sunday night we left David on the floor of the battlefield in the Valley of Elah where he defeated the Philistine champion Goliath. And you know as well as I do, having read these stories all our life, that David's stock is soaring right now. David's popularity is climbing and climbing and climbing. Everyone likes David. And that includes King Saul's son, his oldest son, Jonathan, who becomes David's best friend. But not everybody likes David. King Saul, for instance, does not like David at all and is afraid of David and begins to think devious thoughts about this young man David. But believe it or not, before Saul can act on any of this mischief that he's imagining and conjuring up in his mind, David goes out and marries his daughter. This creates even more paranoia for King Saul. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 29, that Saul became still more afraid of him. He is afraid of him. He's becoming more and more afraid of him. And Saul remained his enemy the, days of, uh, the rest of his days. Now, you would think that a guy like David is, is on top of the world. David has defeated Goliath, the, the Philistine champion. And the victory that he won on that battlefield there at the Valley of Elah accrued to all of Israel. He was their hero. He was their champion. Not only has he defeated Goliath and has won that, the, the, you know, the Medal of Honor for going out into that valley and fighting him, but he's become BFF with the king's son. And then on top of that, he's husband to the king's daughter. We think all is well with David and his life. But nope. David's life at this point, he has hit apogee and he's beginning to drop. David's life is hitting a lot of turbulence at this point. And for a period of time, David is going to be on the run. He has to leave his home. He has to leave his country because the most powerful man in his country is trying to kill him. Saul will go so far as to throw a javelin at him to try to pin him to the wall. And even though there are a couple of times that David can have his revenge on Saul for trying to kill him and run him out of Bethlehem and run him out of the nation, and David could have taken Saul's life, he spares the king because David realizes that the God's anointed, being the king, God's anointed king, is a very special, special thing. But David's ordeal, being on the run, his life on the lamb is not nearly over. In fact, it's going to be a long time before he's going to be able to find any refuge. And believe it or not, for a time, he is even going to find refuge. Things have gotten so dark and so muddled for David that believe it or not, David is going to find refuge among the Philistines. And he's going to find it in 1 Samuel chapter 27. He's going to find his residence in a place called Ziklag among the Philistines. Now, a lot of years ago, back in the, in the late 80s, Ellen and I lived in Southern California, and we worked with the church that was going to send us to Brazil. And at that time, uh, for a long period of time there that we were in San Diego, we didn't have any children. So what we would do every Monday morning when I would take time off from the, the office is we would go out to the beach. We were 30 minutes from like 12 different beaches. And it, and it was great, and we would have time to, to explore the coast. And there was a little town just north of San Diego that we found by the name of Cardiff-by-the-Sea. And Ellen said one time, you know what, it'd just be great if we could just live in a place like that where our mailing address was Mark and Ellen Apsher, 1522 Pacific Coast Highway, Cardiff-by-the-Sea. But David's living in Ziklag. You know what that sounds like? Stalag, which means prison. And it is, in a way. 
And that's where he is in 1 Samuel chapter 27, living among the Philistines in a place called Ziklag. And here we are at the end of 1 Samuel. And it's here at the end of this, this first book that bears Samuel's name that tragedy strikes hard. And it strikes hard at the heart of David and it strikes hard at the heart of Israel. Israel is fighting, once again, the Philistines and Saul and his sons, not all of them, but three of them, including Jonathan, are killed in battle against their, their enemies, the Philistines. And in chapter 31, verses 6 and 7, Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. And when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, what did they do? They abandoned the towns and fled and the Philistines came in and occupied them. Things are so bad that these cities and these towns and these villages where the Israelites are living, things are so desperate now that the king and three of his sons are dead and the army has been routed and the armor bearer is on the ground next to Saul that they are leaving those cities and fleeing. They're taking everything that they can put in a cart or carry and the Philistines are coming in and taking over the cities. And Israel is once again without a king. And 2 Samuel begins with David. With David coming home and inquiring of the Lord, and the Lord telling him to go up to Hebron. And he goes to Hebron, and the men of Judah come, and they anoint him king over the house of Judah. But not all of those sons of Saul have died out there on the battlefield. There's another son of Saul, a man by the name of Ishbosheth. He's still around. And the old general of the army of Israel, Abner, makes him king over Israel. Well, you got the house of David, and now you got the house of Ishbosheth. And you know what happens when you have these two competing kings, these two competing rulers in the same country? Civil war breaks out. And there is this incredibly terrible, awful, horrific little story that, that's told of how uh, 12 from the house of David, young men, and, and 12 from the house of Ishbosheth, they had this little 12 on 12 contest between the servants of Ishbosheth and, 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 uh, and David where they, they grab, they go down into a, the bottom of a pool, into a pit, and the object was to grab the head of your opponent and stick your sword into his side. And what happened is that 24 young men died in Israel that day. And that little terrible, horrific episode creates another bigger episode of battle and a decisive battle in Israel where David comes out on top. And it's not long after that that the old general of, uh, under Saul Abner dies and Ishbosheth dies. And David is made king over a unified Israel. And with a unified Israel goes to war with Philistia and he begins to win battle after battle and is triumphant. And it's also about this time that, that David has taken Jerusalem away from the Jebusites and is going to make the capital there. And David brings the ark of God to Jerusalem, which brings us to our text that David read part of this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, the beginning of that chapter, after the ark has been brought to Jerusalem, says this, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him. David is resting from his enemies. And that's a big deal. 
this is a really big deal because Israel had constantly been harassed off and on for centuries by her enemies. And now under David, there is a sense of peace. And David has been achieving military victories. And for the first time in a really long time, maybe since the time of Joshua, Israel is now in a peaceful, stabilized environment. And the funny thing is, a sign of that peace, a sign that there is rest, that, the, that, that they are resting from, from all of this harassment from their enemies, a sign of this peace is that David, the guy that has been on the run and on the lamp and has been moving about and very nomadic for most of his adult life, now has a home. That's right. David now has time to buy a home. And not just any home. He has bought a home that is a beautiful home made of cedar. Now, having just come out of the cedar fever, fever air, uh, time of our year, we're going, what in the world would a guy want with a cedar house? But during this period of time, cedar was a precious wood in the ancient world, and kings would trade it with each other. And he's got this nice, beautiful home. And it's made out of cedar, and there's carvings, and there's, there's, there's room for expansion. And one day David calls in Nathan the prophet and says, you know, I live in this big, beautiful home. It's made out of cedar, and God lives in this tent. It's been around for centuries. It's kind of ragged looking, maybe spotted, stained in a couple of areas. It's looking kind of ragged in some places. I want to build God a house. And Nathan does what every minister does when a wealthy donor steps up to the plate and says, you know what, I'd like to give a large donation to the ministry. Nathan says in verse 3, whatever you have in mind, go and do it for the Lord is with you. In other words, great idea, David. Make sure you write a big check. But then Yahweh comes to Nathan at night and says that David is not going to build that temple. David wants to make a, a gigantic contribution, wants to build this temple, a permanent place. I've got a cedar house. Why can't God have a cedar house too? And God says, no. Tell him in no uncertain terms that he will not build my house. And the question that just pops out is why in, why in the world would God not want this? I mean, it seems so innocent. Here's the lesson again that Samuel had to learn over and over again. God does not look on the outside where men look, but God looks where, church? On the inside. God looks at the heart. And there are at least two reasons in this text that David uh, White read for us a couple of minutes ago of why David will not build. The first one is the incarnational reason. The incarnational reason. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 6, God says, this is what I want you to say to David. I have not dwelt in a house... From the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place, but the tent is my dwelling. Whenever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built for me a house out of cedar? God is asking a, a, a terrific question here. And what God is basically saying is there's, there is a, a sense of... in. You know, there's this, this is incarnational aura in our relationship. I'm always with you, even though the incarnation has not come, become complete until the time of Jesus. But God is saying, I've lived among my people. I've lived among my people. I've experienced what they've experienced. I've wandered where they have wandered. I, I have seen every step of the, the, the path that they have taken through the desert to this place during the time of the judges, 
through Saul with the Philistines against the Amalekites to this day. And when have I ever said, build me a house of cedar? In essence, God is saying that He wants to live among His people. He wants to be tabernacled among them. I think for the very reason, because the temple is going to be built one, uh, one day down the road with Solomon, which we'll be looking at next week. But there is still this working on God with Israel in a, a day-to-day relationship. It is still being worked on. Not all of Israel is stabilized. At least, not all of the people. And God's saying, when have I said, ever build me? I've always been in this tent. I've always been with you wherever you went. And then secondly, there is the grace reason. He says, now then, and this is verse 8, now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. What God is doing here is reminding David of what happened back in in Bethlehem. That David was out in the middle of nowhere with the sheep. That when Samuel showed up at the house of Jesse, over there in 1 Samuel, went to Bethlehem, as God instructed him, because you're going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king over Israel, because I've, I've taken the kingship, I've taken everything from Saul, I've taken the nation from Saul. You know the story. Jesse shows up with all of the sons, mount, marches out Eli, who is the tallest and the handsome one first, and God says no, and they go through all of those sons. And Samuel is perplexed. Why in the world have, out of all these sons, God not said, that's the one we're going to anoint, anoint him. And so Samuel looks at, at Jesse and goes, you, you know, I'm supposed to do this, but all of these sons, all of your sons that you marched out in front of me, God has not said, has not chosen any of them. Is there another one? And Jesse kind of looks down and kind of does this with his feet and says, well, you know, there's the little one, there's Davy out there in the middle of nowhere, on the other side of nowhere, with the sheep out in the middle of the pasture. The little one. And Jesse says, you mean the forgotten one? Bring him in. And God is reminding David that he was out in the middle of nowhere with the sheep until God put him in a position to lead God's people. And he's reminding David in all of these words, there's like 23 verbs, and God is the subject of all of these verbs, of the the message that comes to Nathan for David, is that David has not done anything for God. But everything that David has done has been through God. Has been through Yahweh. And the clincher here is this. God says, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. You're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. You know, in the ancient world, there was a correlation in the mind of the people, in the mind of the kings, the rulers, in the holy men, the shamans, that military victories and the building of temples and shrines to the, to the deities, there was a correlation there, that they were connected. Believe it or not, it's still around today. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Ellen and I are up in Cedar Park. Uh, we're getting ready to, to, to go to Kirby and Dan's wedding. And uh, Saturday morning, we're out of town. We're in a hotel. Don't usually have that much free time. And as we're getting ready, I turn on the TV doing a little surfing. And we come up to that, that great, great American TV show, Swamp People. <laughs> this is a fantastic show. I'm not ashamed to say that I like it. <coughs> I'm not, 
Uh, I'm not, I, well, you know, I have to say I, there is quite a bit that you learn, but I, you know, you have to love a show that's in English, but also has to have subtitles so you can understand, you know, what's being said. And it's, you, it, how many of you have seen Swamp People? Come on, be honest, you can't lie in church. Oh, look at this. There's a, lot, there's a lot of us here that like this show. It's a show about these guys in Louisiana and, and women who go out in boats and they have these tags in order to get alligators for. Uh, uh, for the, the food market, food industry in the United States. And it's a really interesting show. And, you know, after a while, though, you're going, why in the world? I mean, there's got to be an easier way to make a living. But there is a, there's this one episode that we were watching that Saturday morning, and this guy uh, who has a Native American background gets into the swamp up to his neck. He is delayed going after. I mean, it's a short period of time that they can get these alligators, but he delays it until he can find this monster granddaddy uh, turtle that he has seen in the swamp. And I mean, he is up to his neck, you know, wandering around up on these banks. You know that grappling, noodling thing where you stick your hand in holes and pull out fish? I don't get that. Uh, that's, but this is what this cat is doing, and he grabs this turtle and he brings it out. And he doesn't kill the turtle, but he paints the turtle up, and they, they, they burn the sage, and, and because of his Native American background, he, he's doing this, this ceremony in order, you know, I am, I am a uh, honoring, you know, whatever the gods are that he, he's, he's, he's burning the sage to. But this turtle is, is sort of a life sacrifice to these gods in order to bless him, to give him victory, to bless his tools, and to give him safety. This is like every other religion in the world. If you build me a house, I'll build you a house. If you build me a house, I'll build you a house. You do something for that God, then that God is going to bless you. In other words, the blessing is always going to be on condition. It's always on condition. But the God of the Bible says, no way. David, no way. Out of sheer, unadulterated grace, I'm going to build you a house. This is utterly different from every other religion in the world on how to approach God. God offers to David a house that's founded on grace. Now, now here's the thing. Why is it, why is it important for us to think about this? Well, do, you, do you remember why Samuel stayed up all night in 1 Samuel chapter 15 crying all night about Saul and what Saul had done and how Saul was, was having a, a, a breakdown? Do you remember why? It was because Saul had become a king like every other king on the planet. Saul had become a king like every other king on the earth. And if David builds God a house, it will, it will begin to look like all the other religions of the world. One of my favorite writers, Eugene Peterson, a commentary on First and Second Samuel, has an interesting observation here, and I quote, he says, do you know what I think? I think that David is just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. Outwardly, everything is the same. He isn't conscious of doing anything different, not self-aware of any shift within. But David, riding the crest of acclaim, having decisively defeated opposition, united God's people and captured the allegiance of all Israel and Judah, heading with success, is now going to do God a favor. If David continues to develop along these lines, he will soon be ruined as God's king. End of quote. There's a, on my 
folder that I carry around with my sermon notes. There's a scripture and uh, some stuff. But there's a, a statement that I read every Sunday morning on that front pew that says, do you know what the difference is between God and a preacher? God never thinks He's a preacher. You know what the difference is between God and David? God never thought He was David. And that's why it's going to be God that builds. And we're told much about God in the middle chapter of 2 Samuel. You know, when David is hearing all of this, at the beginning he's thinking of a physical building. But God is thinking of a house in the sense of the house of a dynasty. The sense of a dynasty. And God says, I will make your descendants a dynasty. The line of David. And God says, not only am I going to make the line of David a dynasty, but I'm going to commit to them in spite of their wavering, at times pitiful and and ugly spirituality. And as you look through this text, the thing that he says is this. The passing of time, the occurrence of sin, the reality of death will not rupture my commitment to them. And this is how he says it. I mean, in verses 12 and 13, when it comes to death, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. God is telling David that even when you die, you no longer walk on the earth and are going out to battle and fighting the battles of Israel against the Philistines and the other enemies. And and you're no longer here. And it's your son that is on the throne. And his son and his son. That commitment to you is not going to be ruptured by death. That line, that succession, that dynasty will continue. And the same with sin. Sin is not going to rupture it. He says, I will be his father in verses 14 and 15. And he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod yielded by men and floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. Never taken away from him. The inability to live without transgressing the law of God will will not stop the dynasty, the line of David from blessing humanity. And then time. You know, every once in a while a guy out, you know, outlives his usefulness. People get tired of hearing the same thing or looking at the same name, eating the same food. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, notice how he says twice forever. He says, your house and your king will endure, what? Forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I mean, death is not going to stop this thing. Sin is not going to stop it. Even time is not going to stop the promises that I'm making to you, David. And when David, when King David, King David hears this, he goes in before the Lord and he's in full possession of his royal powers. But he sits down. He sits down as he becomes aware of God's Word. And I think that this is one of the most critical things that David does during his entire reign. By sitting down, he is renouncing royal initiative and takes himself out of the driver's seat. And it places him prayerfully before God, the King, who is going to direct and in the end, build the temple according to His Word. 
And at this juncture of the David story, I can't help but think of all of those psalms that David wrote and David thought about and the other psalms that that recognize the sovereign position of God. Regardless of what we achieve or the acclaim that comes to us. The end of Psalm 91, because He loves me, says the Lord. Because He loves me, I will rescue Him. I will protect Him. For He acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver Him and honor Him. With long life I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. And it came to pass a thousand years later when the Son of God and the Son of Man And the son of David merged into a miraculous birth. And one night there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today in the town of David. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This ultimate son of David is born into the world in the town of David. John, in his Gospel, in the prologue, those first 18 verses, says that this God, the Son, becomes flesh and dwelled among us. You know what he says literally in the original language? That he tented or tabernacled among us in order to be with us. And that glory in Christ wandered. With his people. One point he said, You know, the foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And this one, Son of David, overcomes sin. And he overcomes death. And because of those two things, he reigns forever and ever and ever in a place where there is no time and invites us to be a part. What a God. What a God that keeps a promise from everlasting to everlasting. We're going to have our shepherds down here at the front and and maybe it's time in your own heart that you have decided that it's The day has come for me to give myself to God, to like David, to sit down in front of God prayerfully and in submission and in humility before that God and to receive the grace that comes from that God incarnated among His people who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in order that we might get the life that He lived. There are shepherds who are ready to come uh, that are going to be down here at the front that can share with you how that can happen for you today. Or if there are other ways that we can minister to you during the singing of this song, 
please come.